to let you see this first scripture in my message this morning. Of how how full, fully grace is working. Guys, can go into my message. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify from himself a people for his own possession was zealous for good works. This is the premise from where we're going to continue this morning. He said, grace is a double-edged sword. He says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Some of us, most of us, have taken part of that part. Thought you've saved me, you've set me free. But then the grace of God has appeared to train us to live godly lives. It's a double-edged sword. It's both. So everything we're doing today, when we open the word of God and when he's gonna speak to us from his word, it's based on this premise, this presupposition that grace didn't just come to save us, didn't just come to take us out of our misery and out of our despair. But this morning as we open the word, I believe grace is gonna train us. Grace is gonna call us up to a set apart standard as a church. This entire week in preparation for today, these two words just keeps coming up. It's like, it's time to be set apart. Set apart. Lord, we as a church, as your bride, take the grace that trains us in godliness. Thank you for the salvation. We get that, we understand that. But this morning, Lord, grace changes everything. It gives us the ability to live this godly life that you have for us. If we have that lens on today, it doesn't matter how strong Jesus is gonna speak because he is gonna speak strong to us today. But he says, it's my grace that makes it possible for you to live a set-apart life. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we are raising our hands to say yes. We are raising our hands in surrender. Lord, and we choose again afresh and we say as a, as a church, as a community, Lord, that we take hold of the double-edged sword of grace that has saved us, but now, Lord, trains us and equips us to live this godly life that you have called us to. Lord, we take everything. We, we say, Lord, it's not by power, it's not by effort, but it's by your spirit, Lord, and the gift of grace that we can live the life that you have for us. So set us apart this morning, Lord. Set us apart, Lord, every hand, every heart that is surrendering to you this morning, Lord. We pray that you would come and set us apart, Lord, and that which we sang this morning, that you would resurrect in us life forevermore. Thank you, Jesus. The premise of everything this morning is grace. The premise of our entire life with Jesus is based on grace, and it's this double-edged sword that he has forgiven us, he has saved us, but then, goodness, he trains us. He equips us. He helps us. Who of you have ever felt overcome by your flesh, by your temptations, by your weaknesses, by your inability, by the culture around us? Jesus is saying today to us, every nation comes to West, can you take the double-edged sword of my grace that has not only saved you but is now setting you on a new course of living 
completely holy. Holiness sounds like a taboo word in our world today, but it simply means that to be set apart. It is to be a peculiar people, a different, a different breed, a people who looks like little Christs, little anointed ones, the Bible says, who walks beyond him and becomes behind him and becomes the full stature that he has for us. And this morning, Jesus sees beauty when he looks at his church and he's offering grace. That's what this whole series, series is about, is Jesus sees beauty and he offers grace. And again this morning, that's what he is coming to do to us when we study this third church in, in, in the book of Revelation. He says again, every nation comes away, it's just like with Pergamum, I saw the beauty that they had and I came and I extended grace to them because they could be much more beautiful and much more set apart. Again, that is the invitation to us this morning. Over the past two weeks, we've been looking at the, the churches in Revelation, and the first week was about returning to our first love. Lord, let us not make it about the Lamb stand and how shiny and perfect we can be. Let us make it all about the glory of the Lamb and loving the lamp and, and focusing on the lamp. And then secondly, last week, we spoke about holding fast amidst incredible persecution and difficulty. The church in Smyrna, the persecuted church, this morning we're going to look at Jesus' words to the church in Pergamum. And I have a simple prayer this morning. I've been praying it all week. That in between the message and me, that you would see and find and hear Jesus this morning. Because this is him speaking. There's sadly a tendency in our culture to want to challenge and question but if Jesus was in our midst today, which he is, but if he was on stage and holding the mic, this would be him saying these words to us this morning. And in order to help us understand why he said this to Pergamum, I want to give us a bit of context, give you some historical background on this, this church and where they were situated in this, this city and what the city was all about. And then we're going to hear how Jesus speaks to them. And I believe that we're even going to see in the city of Pergamum some synonyms to our own community. Some parallels of how the life there and how people live there is so, so connected somehow to the culture around us here in the Helderberg Basin. And in South Africa and maybe into the world. Pergamum was a, a mountainside city. There it is already, very practical, summer's always, it's on the mountainside, close to the ocean. And today, if you go and, and look for this city, you'll still find some incredibly rich ancient ruins. I saw some pictures on, on the website this week, and one of those sites that you, if you ever had to go to Turkey, I would encourage you to go and visit. Pergamum rivaled Ephesus, Alexandria, and Antioch in commerce and culture. They were, they were the leaders when it came to setting culture. They were the leaders when it came to, to, to commercial industry, to business. They were the hub from where things happened and took place. And then very interesting, if you were living in the, in the day of this city while it was still a living and alive city, you would have found the temple of Zeus, the Greek king of the gods. And it was called the altar of Zeus with those who believe in the ideologies and misrepresented ideas of Greek mythology would go and sacrifice to a non-existent God, the altar of Zeus. And connected to him, Athena, 
was also worshipped in this city. I don't want to go into Greek mythology because that's not what we hear about. But I want to give you the context of where these people lived. Their idolatry. And then the Greek worship of the human body. The Greeks had this infatuation with the, the sensuality of the human body. You can see it in their carvings. You can see it in the way that they sculpted. it. And today if you go to Berlin, to one of the, the history museums, you will actually find a piece of the Temple of Zeus that they have kept as a, a thing that you can go and visit in Berlin, in the city in Germany. So the Temple of Zeus was there, and in this city was under Roman rule. There was allegiance to an emperor, and anyone who didn't say, Hail Caesar or Hail Emperor, but who said, Hail Jesus, suffered persecution. So this is the environment in which Jesus walks in and he says, I am going to speak to you today, church. And here we are on the mountainside. Samsa Western, the Helderberg Basin in the Western Cape is a place of culture, it's a place of commerce. But we're surrounded by temples where people go and offer sacrifices to lesser gods, things that doesn't even exist. We're surrounded in a place where people worship the human body. You can just see it, it's around, it's, it's all in the social media. We are in a place where people hold back to confess and say, I'm of Jesus. So I believe this is a word for us today. It was written for the church back then, but all of these letters are written for the church today. So let's hear what Jesus says. Revelation 2, verse 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus, thank you that we have ears. And this morning, Lord, we say we want to hear. So speak to us through the interpretation and anointing of your Holy Spirit as your word is being looked at this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I had to put this into a quick statement to the church in Pergamum, it would simply be hold fast and live holy. This is what Jesus was saying to them. Hold fast to your belief, your confession, what you believe, what you've put your trust in, but don't just hold fast, live a life of holiness. It is the double-edged sword of grace again. Hold fast to the salvation that I brought you 
but then live in the training of my grace to be godly and holy. That's the invitation here. I love how he comes and, and he looks at this part of his bride and he says, well, you're holding on to me. And I, being your bridegroom, I'm holding on to you and we're holding to, on to one another. But, but in that, there's, there's a space that is at odds. So can we, can we talk about that so that there could be unity amongst us? For those of us who are married, you could give you, your wife the strongest and longest hug you possibly can, but if there's a space, that hug doesn't feel all that great, right? Until you talk about the space, being at odds, talking about what it is in your souls that are not aligned. And when you speak about that, then the hug has a whole new level of connection. And this is Jesus saying, my church, you know what, you've hold on to me. And I'm holding on to you. But can we have a deeper connection? Can there be something much greater? And I desire that. Learn about you. I desire that with all my heart this morning. I'm going to take us through the scripture systematically this morning. And we're going to see how do we apply this word in our context. First of all, we see that this is all about Christ's supreme authority and truth. He is the one with the two-edged sword. It's him. It's no human. It's no judicial system. It's no government. It's no opinion of culture. Jesus is the one with the two-edged sword. It's all in his authority and his supremacy that that two-edged sword exists. What does it represent? It represents his authority and his truth. It represents salvation and it represents him cutting away the sin and the way we're not set apart. It represents the Logos word, the written word on the one side when we read it, but then it represents the Rhema word when that becomes life to us. It represents both love and justice. For so many who walk their Christian walk and, and, and want to follow Jesus, they love the sword with the one side of love but dare not be spoken about the sort of justice and judgment. But Jesus stands in his church and says, I hold the sword. No opinion holds it. I am the just judge who's come with love to come and receive you, and I've given you the grace, but now my grace, the double-edged sword of grace, gives you the ability to live a pure and set-apart life. He's speaking to his church here, and when we see later what he does with the sword if the church does not repent, it is clear that judgment begins in the house of God. He comes to his church first, his bride, and he says, I'm going to bring my sword of truth and authority and justice and love and salvation and sin, and I'm going to speak to you because I love you. And he comes and he cuts away the things that he doesn't like. And it's painful, but he prunes and he makes us better and he makes us clean and he washes us and he sets us on a new trajectory of life because of his love for his bride. Jesus sees his bride and he sees beauty and he offers grace. That's the message this morning. He is the only true judge. And I don't know who you allow to be the judge over your walk of life. Maybe you let culture dictate what is right and wrong. Maybe you let your feelings dictate 
what is right and wrong. You've made that the judge. Maybe you've let a family member or a certain way of thinking dictate what is right and wrong. There's one who holds the sword, and it's Jesus. All authority and supremacy is rested in him. And he's saying this at the beginning of this message to Pergamum because he needed to come and deal with something. He said, I want to remind you that I am the one on the throne. I'm the one with judgment in my mouth. And I'm the one with the double-edged sword. And we've got to settle that thought this morning before we continue. And maybe some of you have lived under the judgment of different judges, even being your own. Your emotions, whatever it is. Can we come and see that Jesus holds the two-edged sword? Hebrews describes the two-edged sword as that this, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what Jesus is coming to do to his church. I'm gonna come and discern between the intents and the thoughts of your life. I'm gonna be cutting because I love you, I brought salvation, and I want to train you in godliness. But this is the invitation this morning. The one who has the double-edged sword. You know, this is amazing. We don't actually have to fear this. It is a humbling and painful moment when God does this to you. But the payoff is worth it. What's at stake? What's at stake is if you don't allow Jesus to come and let his word divide your life, you're gonna miss out on the fullness of what he has for you. And some of us in this room have heard this, but we've not allowed the dividing. We've read it, we've been discipled in it, but we still choose to be our own judge and we choose the lifestyle we want. He is the one with the double-edged sword. Second thing, as we continue through the scripture, he speaks about Satan's dwelling place. I know where you dwell, where Satan is. Ricky did a phenomenal job last week to speak about Jesus knowing. He knows how difficult it is and how the spiritual climate around us is offensive to us and is constantly at war against our thoughts and the life that we wish to so live in Jesus. But culture is just pulling us away and other ideas of thinking just pulls us away and Jesus says, I know. You are right there in the midst of where Satan lives. You can do three clicks, three seconds on your phone and you can see the most incredible filth you want to because Satan is living right here in this present age. You can go down the road and do whatever you'd like to do if you want to, because this is Satan's home, the present age. He's around, the Bible says. And Jesus said, I know. I know it's hard. I know there's a constant spiritual war up against you. The fact that Jesus knows gives us the confidence that if he knows, then surely he will extend the grace to equip us to live godly lives, and he so does. I'm not talking about making mistakes, because we all do. I'm saying you could live a holy life in such a way that you don't have to constantly be dealing with sin anymore. The habitual nature of our flesh is cut by the double-edged sword, and we are free 
And then, yes, mistakes happen. But then there's forgiveness and grace back. We are surrounded in a space, and I don't know why he said where Satan dwells here. It could be because it was Zeus's temple. It could be for a whole lot of reasons. But I think it is simply that the culture of immorality, the religious idolatry, and the physical persecution that was just surrounded in Pergamum was so real that he says, my kids, I know this is hard. You are right there in the most dark place. Doesn't the world feel a whole lot dark at the moment? Jesus says, I know. Speaks about a place where the presence and work of Satan is constantly operating against the church of God. Constantly. Never ceasing. Looking for an opportunity. And we're going to get to the hope in a moment because Jesus said, even though I know that you dwell there, you've hold on. Well done. We're going to get there in a moment, but I remember one of my most real experiences with the darkness of spiritual forces was being in India in Varanasi. And there's similarities here because Varanasi is the birthplace of both Hinduism and Buddhism, two of the major world religions out of one city. And I remember being on the Ganges River, which is their God that they worship, and they do it with the most inhuman ways that you can imagine. And we saw that and all the, the idol worship and the brokenness of the people and, and the dark and despair. And we went to the place where Buddhism was initiated in the city. And I remember three days in Varanasi being so dark that one night I woke up with hands around my neck throttling me to death. I had to just get it out, Jesus. And when I said that those hands left, no one in the room. Spiritual darkness, the place where Satan dwells. That's what I felt in Varanasi. It was so intense that one of our team members ended up in hospital nearly dying. His wife was in hospital with him, waking up the one night with hands pushing her off her bed. There was no one in the room. Spiritual darkness. I can imagine that's what Pergamon might have felt like to the Christians. This constant opposing hard work of just staying near Jesus and that darkness all around them. I feel like I felt some of that in Varanasi. You know how intense it was when we left it off in Varanasi and landed in, 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 in Delhi, which is the capital? Still India, still dark, still 10-story big idols that people sacrifice their kids to. So still that darkness. But the, the amount of darkness from Varanasi to Delhi is so big that when we arrived in Delhi, I felt like I could breathe again. And Jesus is saying to Pergamum, yes, it's dark where you are at. And some of us feel like we're in a Pergamum today in the world around us. We've got to be so careful that our kids don't see things and they can never unsee. We should be so careful that we don't allow temples of worship in our house that is all around the culture of today. Jesus says, I know. But then he says, this I have, and I want to commend you on, that you are holding fast amidst all this spiritual persecution. You hold fast to my name and did not deny your belief in me. They hold on fast to two things, the name of Jesus, which is the most powerful name above everything. 
I remember being a young student. I prayed once. I said, God, I've heard the testimonies of, of people saying they were in a situation and when they said Jesus, you saved them out of it. Can I have a testimony like that? Stupid prayer to pray. The next day I was on the way from Stellenbosch back home to my parents for the, the school break or the, the study break in the car, two o'clock at night, the car tires burst and all that came out of my mouth was Jesus and the car started spinning and threw us off the ditch. And then when we got out in the dark and started shining our, uh, our lights around, we were a couple of meters away from a five meter drop. But these people knew the power of saying, Jesus, what would it look like if you walk into a vile environment where immorality is celebrated and you say, Jesus, the name above that, and you turn your back and you leave the room? What if you see something on television that should not be in your house and you say, in Jesus' name, I come against that and you switch it off? You see, that's what he's calling his church to today. He's saying, my church, it's time for you to hold on to my name like never before. And I want to encourage you and I want to commend every nation of the West this morning because I look across this room and I see people who are holding on to the name of Jesus. I see people who are holding on to their belief and their confession. Don't let your surrounds affect your devotion to the name of Jesus. Sure, Lord, but we do it all the time. Jesus says, I know. Therefore, I am seeing beauty and I'm extending grace. I see more in you, my bride. You could live in a place of set-apartness. To these people, the persecution looked, apart from the culture and the idolatry, looked very real with people being killed. Jesus speaks about Antipas, the trustworthy witness. It's amazing when you read that and when you read the, the, to the church or Revelation 1 and to one of the churches, Jesus speaks of himself as the trustworthy witness. So he compares Antipas to himself because Antipas was one of the bishops, one of the key leaders of the church in Pergamum. And what happened is he was taken captive and killed in front of everyone to see. Imagine this morning I'm preaching and through the door come some soldiers and they slaughter me on the stage. That's what happened. He said, even in that moment, you as a church stood up and you say, Jesus. Even in that moment when your leader was slaughtered, your, your, your spiritual leader, the leader of that church, you said, Jesus, the emperor can come. I'm not going to give any allegiance to the emperor. I'm going to give my allegiance to Christ. And we've got to ask the question. When we are around other places and spaces where we can give our allegiance to other things, not even shedding our blood, blood to the point of death like Antipas have. Are we holding on to that name? Are we holding on to the belief, is the word, the conviction of what we have built our Christian walk on? To those who do, Jesus is saying this morning, well done. I know that you are doing it. Well done for doing it. And yet, this church in Pergamum Jesus is complimenting them and says, well done. But then he says, but wait, there's something we've got to talk about. You are allowing spiritual compromise. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, Balak, and the Nicolaitans. You confess my name, 
You believe in me, you believe in my salvation, but you practice things that you should not. And this I have against you. Well done for staying strong and standing ground and holding on to me, but there's some compromise in you that I want to speak about. And he, he mentions it clearly. He speaks about Balak and Balaam. And the story, if you go to Numbers 21, you can go and read the story. What happened is Balak was the king of the Moabites and he wanted to come against Israel. And Israel was at that point of time so strong that this king feared the day that Israel would come against the Moabites. So he summons a prophet called Balaam. And he says, can you come and curse the people of God? God stops this prophet in his, in his way there and says, There's, you're not going to do this. These are my people. You're not going to bring spiritual oppression and persecution against my people. See, that's the fight that's happening all the time. Jesus says, this is my church. This is my bride, Satan. I'm not gonna allow you to come and curse and come against it. He's fighting that battle on our behalf all the time. And he went and he said to, to Balak, that is not gonna happen. And then the story unfolds three, four, five times. And eventually he, he comes and he, he blesses the people of Israel. God changes that opportunity to speak persecution against his people into a blessing. And he says, Balaam, you only say what I tell you to say. And it was blessing over the people of Israel. But you know what happened? Balak came to Balaam and it's not exactly quite clear what they colluded, but they decided to put a stumbling block of perversion amongst the Israelites. If we can't curse them, let's make them stumble. And when they overcame the Moabites, what did they do? They took the Moabite woman for themselves and indulged in sexual immorality. And they took the Moabite plunder and they enjoyed the food and what they got as if it was their own. And they said, this is great, we've won. Now let's enjoy and feast on this. Jesus says, I have it against you when you do that. Speaks about the Nicolaitans and the little we know about it is that whoever Nikolai was and the people that followed him, he was speaking and teaching the same principles, sexual immorality and idolatry. One of the greatest battles for the church is the battle against blurred lines. We have to stop and ask ourselves, why do we even consider to tolerate that which Jesus hates? Why do we even consider to tolerate it? Jesus didn't say, I hate the Nicolaitans. He loves them. He would love for them to repent. He said, I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You see, we don't want to put Jesus and hate in the same sentence. But he speaks with such words. See, so there's stuff that those people are doing. I don't approve. In fact, I hate it. But maybe in our culture today, yes, we're just allowing so much. We're tolerating. I would never. But then you allow that scene to run through the movie a little longer. I would never, then the three-second click leads you to places that you should have never. I would never be 
around another couple and desire his wife or her husband. But then you let that private moment and the conversation run a little further. And you know, this is not God. See, here's the key. If the enemy can't take out the church with persecution from without, he will attempt to take out the church with perversion from within. All of the spiritual world was against these people. And they held on. When that darkness and persecution and slaughter and slander and hate speech came against them, they held on. They stood their ground. The enemy says, can't beat them, let me join them. Let me get in on the inside and infiltrate, maybe through one or two people, a lifestyle that alludes to something other than what God wants. And that started to spread. And Jesus comes to his church and he says, you guys, I've got to warn you. I've got to call this out to you because I love you. Don't allow this to happen. This was deeply convicting, deeply convicting to me. I'm off social media except for Instagram, but sometimes you just scroll through Instagram and I've made it a private account and I choose very wisely who I follow to see their pictures, but stuff pops up. What do I do in that moment? What do you do in that moment? At that current point of time, it's still the persecution from without. But then you, do, you then choose to partner with the perversion from within. Spiritual compromise never pleases Christ. Never. Never does. Church, you can stand strong. You can say the name of Jesus. You can sing the songs. You can go to church. You can go to life group. You can buy the CDs. You can have the Bible. You can buy the books. You can stand strong. But have you allowed the infiltration of perversion and compromise in your life? And then Jesus says, choose. And here's an option. Repentance or war. He didn't choose a light word there. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Interesting words. Therefore church, repent. Those of you who are in holiness and set apartness and holding on to my name, because if you don't do those who are not, I'm going to come and I'm going to war against them with the sword of my mouth. Can you imagine, just to visualize that for a moment, Jesus standing in front of you and with his sword, he cuts into you and he makes war against you. That's what he's saying. But this is filled with grace. He's giving them a way out. He says, you can repent. Just choose life. I put before you life and death. Will you choose life? Will you take that which I have died for for you? Would you still want to sit in the seat of the culture around you? Would you want to come and sit in the seat of my pleasure where I dwell? Do you want to just enjoy where Satan dwells? Today you've got an opportunity, Pergamum. Today you have an opportunity. Every nation summits the West. Choose. Just choose. Repentance or war. And repentance is filled with love and grace and acceptance and identity and everything that we so need. 
sees my church, I love you. Here it is. There's grace. And then this letter becomes deeply beautiful and intimate when he speaks about the conqueror's promises, not just one promise, three promises. To the one who conquers, who repents, and turn away from the idolatry and the immorality of this world, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All he's saying is, I've got something better. My church, my people, I've got something better. The momentous moment of enjoyment and pleasure in this earth lasts a few minutes or seconds. I want to feed you with hidden manna. Isn't that beautiful? Three promises. Jesus always has something better. Always. It's just the way it is. I'm yet to find someone that has wholeheartedly lived for Christ all their lives and say, nah, I think the world is better. Bring that person to me. That is, I'm saying fully and wholeheartedly lived for Jesus. Because people do waver and make mistakes. Who knows this morning that what Jesus have is always better? Who knows it this morning? Then take it. Live in that. Three promises. Hidden manna, white stone, and a new name. And this is what it signifies. Hidden manna is a promise of provision. White stone, a promise of purification. A new name, a promise of adoption and intimacy. Let me explain this to you. St. Pergamum, you are in that center of culture. And you know what? There's some dodgy business deals there. And you want to side with some of these people. And you want to eat the food that they sacrifice to idols. And you want to be part of that culture. Because then you could make some money and you can live this life. And I've got a hidden manna. I've got all the provision that you need. I've got it for you. Don't be sitting in the seat of the culture when I'm your provider, where I am the bread of life, where I am the wellspring that never runs dry. Everything that you need is in me. I've got that for you. It speaks about his provision over our lives. Secondly, a white stone in the culture that day, one of the practices was when you were found guilty or brought before the judge because of something you've done, if you are acquitted of your guilt, you were given a white stone. Isn't that beautiful? If you weren't acquitted of your guilt, you were given a black stone. And Jesus says to the one who conquers, the one who chooses against the culture of this world, I'm giving white stones. I'm saying you are acquitted of any guilt that you've done. He was given the Nicolaitans and those who followed the teachings of Balak and Balaam an opportunity to grab hold of the white stone of his forgiveness being washed white as snow, he was giving it to them. Jesus is standing this morning at some hearts and he's offering you the white stone. Are you taking it? Or do you want to wait when he comes back and say, okay, Jesus, it seems like the black stone has been my little token of choice. And then, this is beautiful, on that stone is written a new name that only you know. It speaks about a father who wants to adopt us. 
and puts a new identity on us. So he speaks about intimacy with a loving father. He says, my church, I want to love you. I want to be speaking things to your soul. I know you. I formed you in your mother's womb. All your days are before me. I've got things and identity and plans and purposes and love and grace for you. Do you want that? Or do you enjoy the place where Satan dwells? You see, the question is simple. Do we want manna? Or do we want idol's food? Do we want a pure white stone? Or do we want to live in our promiscuity and immorality? Do we want to belong to him? Be called sons and daughters of the most high God with a new name that the father knows and we know. Speaks about that deep belonging. Or are we quite happy to just belong in the place where Satan dwells? To the one who conquers, I will give hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name that only he knows. And I want to go back to where we started this morning, the presupposition of everything I said, for the grace of God has appeared. It is available. Bringing salvation, it is available for all people. It is available to you today. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. It is available for you today. And then that same grace is willing and available to you to train you to renounce ungodliness, the passions of this world, the culture that just takes us in. We have the ability because of grace this morning to say, God, we renounce that. We are done. We are done. We will not anymore tolerate the things that you don't. Because Jesus, you are our ultimate desire and pursuit. And we want to be the most precious, pure, perfect bride we could possibly be. So simply today is this. Choose today. We have a choice to make. We're not going to be singing so that we feel fuzzy and good to make a choice. There's a choice before us. Repentance or war. A white or a black stone. Idols, food or manna. Hidden manna. Pure, perfect manna. An adoption as a son and daughter of the Most High God and an identity which He determines, not us. He determines what it looks like. So the invitation today to us as a church is choose today. Choose the seat where you want to sit, seated with Christ in heavenly places, or choose to sit in the seat where through culture and idolatry and opinion and temptation dwells. Choose today. Where do you want to place yourself? I know where I believe every nation Somerset West wants to place ourselves, and it's right here. I believe it. I know this is our heart. I know this is our heart. And yes, it's a very personal word, but today is a corporate call for this house to say we will not 
listen to music that is filled with promiscuity. We will not feast our eyes on things that is filled with blasphemy and immorality. We will not linger a little longer so that we can feel love and affirm because our affirmation is in the Father. We will not, and eating idol's food doesn't mean eating halal food. It's a cultural thing. just want to settle that. If it says halal on there, that's okay. It's just it's the way they prepare it. Don't have to boycott any supermarket. What it means is we're not going to feast on the things that are sacrificed and offered to this culture. Maybe just one more glass. Maybe just the most expensive glass. Maybe just worshiping our bodies. So everything we eat is so perfectly thought of so that we can look as good as we can. Simple, guys. Simple. And I wanted to go so real this morning. Otherwise, it's just a pie in the sky moment. So what do you choose? What are you choosing today? I'm gonna go stand there. I'm gonna face forward with you guys. And I'm gonna invite everyone who wants to choose the seated with Christ in heavenly places today to stand with me. And then we're gonna respond by reading confessions from the Bible of what it is to be following Jesus. And not only holding on to our belief and holding on to his name, but saying, God, today is the day that we draw the line and we set ourselves apart for your purposes. So if you want to join and read that together, stand and we're going to read the confessions from the screen. You don't have to read the verse reference. I've just put it in there so that you can see it from the word. Can I give you a moment to just quiet your heart, think about the decision. Consider your decision, weigh it up. Consider what you have got to cut out of your life because the double-edged sword of his word has spoken to you today. Consider where you need to make right where you have wronged someone else, maybe your spouse, maybe a brother or a sister. Consider where you have enjoyed idol's food and the supplication of the culture instead of the provision of Jesus, the hidden manna. Consider where you have lived in an identity other than which he has for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would see every heart and speak to every heart. I pray, Lord, that today when we read these verses and the confession of them, that it won't be empty words, but a deep conviction that this church will not only hold on to your name when things get tough, will not only believe in you, but Lord, we will live holy and we will live set apart. Let's read together. Let's read out loud. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Since we belong to Christ, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. Not only do we live by the Spirit, we also walk by the Spirit. Because we walk by the Spirit, we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We walk in the light as God is in the light. We have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. It is the will of God for us to be set apart for holy living, that we shun sexual immorality, that we know how to control our bodies in a holy and honorable way, not in the passion of lust, as those who don't know God. Thus, we do not take advantage of a wrong or wrong a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We have no other gods before him. We make Jesus our first love. We do not throw away our confidence, which has a great reward, for we have need of endurance, so that when we have done the will of God, we may receive what is promised. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Lord, I pray that this confession would be the way that we live from this moment forward. I pray, Lord, that your alignment would come to every heart. I pray, Lord, where people are in need of your grace this morning, that, that they would know that it can boldly come to your throne of forgiveness. And you will cleanse and you will wash and you will set them in line with this confession. We thank you for that this morning. Lord, we will be a church who have no fellowship with darkness because we walk in the light and our fellowship is with one another as we are in Christ Jesus. And the people of God all say,